The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week, we're learning about the fascinating lives of bees and the important role they play in our global ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. I'm joined today by Professor Dave Goulson. Dave was brought up in rural Shropshire, where he developed an early obsession with wildlife. He received his bachelor's degree in biology from Oxford University, followed by a doctorate on butterfly ecology at Oxford Brookes University. Subsequently, he lectured in biology for 11 years at the University of Southampton, and it was there that he began to study bumblebees. He's published more than 200 scientific articles on the ecology and conservation of bumblebees and other insects, and he's the author of a number of books on the topic as well. He's here to talk about A Sting in the Tail, My Adventures with Bumblebees. Dave, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Now, how did your overwhelming interest in insects begin? I don't actually know. I, as early as I can remember when I was, I don't know, I guess my earliest memories are sort of five, six, I was already hooked. I remember catching anything I could catch. And actually, I think most kids do this, don't they? That They love to hunt for bugs, stick them in jam jars, put them on the windowsill and feed them things and look after them or whatever. My own kids do it now. Uh, but somehow I managed to carry on doing it into my uh, until I'm nearly 50 now and I've been doing it my whole life and thankfully managed to make a living out of it so so I guess I'm quite lucky. What is it about them that's so interesting? I mean it's it's like a little alien world you know that we're surrounded by these creatures and there's enormous numbers of them different species yeah three quarters of of life on earth are are insects of one sort or another Uh, and people often pay them no attention at all you know most people go go through their whole lives barely noticing um, these things and yet they're all around us they do all sorts of important important things that are really weird and wonderful and interesting things. And it's, it's just fun to find out about them and to watch them and, and see what they do. Let's talk about why bees are so fascinating. Uh, maybe to start off, can you just walk us through the life cycle of a bee? When you say a bee, what I first need to explain is that there's an awful lot of bees. Many, many people think there's one species of bee and it lives in a box and it makes honey. That's a million miles from the truth. I mean, actually, there are 22,000 species of bee in the world. So, so I can't tell you the life cycle of the bee because there are all, there are so many of them. But what I maybe could do is, is tell you the life cycle of the bumblebee, which is my speciality. And they're perhaps the most familiar of the wild bees. So they're the big fur stripy bees that that we see in our gardens and parks and fields and so on they have a life cycle that probably best to pick it up in the in early spring when the, you get these great big fat queen bees emerge from hibernation they've been asleep underground all winter and they burrow up out the ground on the first warm day of spring and you see these enormous things flying about and they, they're desperately hungry because they've been asleep for seven months and so they feed on any anything they can find in the early spring and then they look for somewhere to nest and you see them flying backwards and forwards low to the ground and they're looking for a hole. They're hoping to find a, a dry, dark, cosy cavity they can nest in. And if they find one, then they'll, they'll fly in and out and stock it with pollen 
and they'll lay a little batch of eggs and they, they incubate their batch of eggs by, they literally sit on it and they push their tummy against it and they shiver to keep warm to, and to keep their brood warm. And if all goes well, a few weeks later, they have adult daughter, uh, bees that, that, that are workers. They're, they, they don't themselves ever breed, but their job is to look after the nest and their mom, um, and to bring in more food. And so the nest grows through the spring and eventually it might have two or three hundred workers. And then in the summer, it switches from producing workers to producing uh, males and new queens. And the males, their, their only job in life is to, is to mate with a new queen. They don't do any work in the nest. They don't gather food or anything. They just sit around on flowers and occasionally dash frantically around trying to find a female to mate with. The females, they mate really quickly and they just mate once in their whole life, um, which means that, that actually the, that many of those males, they never actually get to mate at all. Um, there, there are about seven times as many males as there are queens and the queens only mate once. So it means that six out of seven males actually never get to do the one thing that they're meant to do, which is kind of sad. Anyway, as soon as they've mated, the, the, the new queens, they burrow into the ground, and this can be as early as July, and they sleep right through to the next year, and the, the old nest just dies off. The, the old queen dies, every, all the workers slowly fizzle out, uh, and that's the annual cycle of the bumblebee. Now, the, the queen bees are able to choose the, the specific role of the bees by choosing the gender of their offspring? The genetics of bees and, and their relatives, the wasps and ants, is pretty weird. Basically, a female bee can control whether she produces a male, a son or a daughter by simply controlling whether she allows the egg to be fertilized or not. So she stored this sperm inside her from when she mated the previous summer. And she can control, every time she lays an egg, she can control whether it's fertilized as it, as it comes out. If it's fertilized, it'll turn into a, a daughter. If it's not, it'll turn into a son. Which is, which is rather weird. I mean, it, it actually means that the male bees have no father genetically at all. They, they are entirely produced by their, their mother. Um, one of the strange consequences of this weird genetic system is that the daughters are much more closely related to one another than the normal brothers and sisters in, in, for example, humans or butterflies or most organisms. So you and I are 50% related to our siblings. But if you were a, a, a female bee, you'd be 75% related to your sisters. And so that kind of quirk of genetics um, has favoured the evolution of this social lifestyle. This, so essentially what a bumblebee nest is, is a gang of sisters all helping their mother produce more sisters. And the, the reason they're kind of predisposed to do that is because they're, they're very closely related to their sisters, more closely than they would be to their own offspring, for example. Um, and so in terms of maximizing the number of kind of genetic copies of, the, of their DNA there are in the world, it's, it's, a, it's a better strategy than it would be in other organisms. Well, and the, the bee mating process itself is, is interesting. Can you talk about patrolling and hilltopping? Bumblebees have various strange ways of finding finding mates. Um, the, the, there are lots of different ones, but probably the best known was was described uh, by Charles Darwin in his back garden. And, and basically, what they do is that early in the morning, the male bees go out and they mark a route with pheromones. They'll go around maybe two hundred yard. Um, circuit, often following hedges and tree lines and so on. And every few metres, they'll paste pheromones from their, they're produced in their, their mandibular glands in their head and they, their, their jaws have little 
kind of moustaches on them that they could use as paintbrushes to paste these pheromones onto leaves. So they, they, they make this, this sort of circuit of marked with pheromones. Uh, and it's not just one male, a whole gang of them will mark out the same route together. And then at some point in the day, something will trigger them and they'll all start racing around this circuit flat out. Um, so if you stand at any point on it, you see this stream of, of frantic male bees whizzing past one after another, going round and round and round in this kind of crazy circle. And, and so Darwin, he actually had his, got his children, he had lots of children, and he dotted them all the way around the circuit and, uh, and had them shout every time a bee came past. And he even actually got them with sugar shakers, sugar sprinklers, filled with flour, to, trying to sprinkle flour onto these male bees so they could see them more easily and make them like little ghost bees. And, and so he, he tracked these, these things in his garden. And he found that actually that what's quite weird is that, that males will use the same route in, in successive years. So he had the same route being used in his garden. Obviously completely different males. How they could possibly know that this was a good route or that it was used the year before is anyone's guess. Um, so anyway, quite a few male bu- uh, bumblebees do this. Nobody really knows how it works, so it's, it, it must be something to do with attracting a mate. But but nobody's ever seen a, a virgin female come along and mate with one of these these mad males. So so it, it's kind of puzzling. I mean, I'm sure they do, and it's probably something that happens very quickly. And and obviously, you know, people don't have the time to sit there all day long watching these this behavior and 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 observing if just once in a blue moon a female does come along so i guess that it does happen but i've never seen it and then other males of different species have different strategies and, and there are all sorts of different ones uh, one of the one of the commonest is is hilltopping where the males are basically they just they just fly uphill and inevitably that means that, that they end up congregated at the tops of the nearest hills. And you can, I had, I had some undergraduate students do their projects on this. Um, and they went every day walking up the sides of, of, of mountains and uh, found these, these kind of gangs of males sitting around on flowers at the tops of the hills. The same behaviour actually, you, you can see it in, in, in some butterfly species. And again, what's presumed to happen, and, and, it, and this definitely is the case in butterflies, is that when, when a female wants to mate, if she wants to find a male and have a, a nice selection of males to choose from, all she has to do is fly to the top of the nearest hill and there'll be a gang of males sitting there waiting for her. And it gives her a selection to choose from. Presumably, again, that's what's happening with bumblebees. But once again, we've never actually seen a female go up the hill to find one of these males. Uh, so who knows? But we, we assume it's a, a mechanism for locating a mate. Well, I found it interesting because it, it seems to be that hilltopping is, is not very competitive, which is unusual. Well, both of these things are kind of interesting because they, they both involve gangs of males um, being together, which you kind of intuitively think that that seems like a quite a poor strategy for getting a mate because if, if one does come along, you've got loads of competition. But it, it may be that, that you've got no chance of getting a mate if you're not in one of these gangs. So, so you know, even even it's, it's better than nothing. And there's been research on other creatures in, in this respect. So there are things called leks, which um, there, are, there are quite a few birds that, that do this, and other, some mammals as well. But a, a lek is basically an, an aggregation of males. And uh, so, f- 
for example, grouse are uh, well known for doing this. And the males are very pretty, they have elaborate plumage and whatnot. And every, every spring in the breeding season, they'll gather together in some completely random location. It, it doesn't need to be the top of a hill. And they'll all display like crazy. And the females can come along and they can basically watch all the males and can sort of, you know, take notes, compare, and eventually decide which is the most attractive, splendid, whatever, who's got the nicest feathers, whatever it is a female grouse looks for in a male grouse. Um, so from her point of view, it's great. It gives her a, a selection. Um, but again, you know, the question is, what, what's in it for the males? And I suppose you could see it. It's like a, it's like a nightclub, although there are lots of men perhaps looking for women in a nightclub. If you don't go to the nightclub, then, then you're probably even less likely to find an available woman. I don't know. I'm maybe, maybe wandering into territory that is not strictly relevant to bee mating behavior. But, um, but yeah, we assume that, uh, that, that these behaviors must ultimately be, you know, work for, the, for these male bees, but it's slightly puzzling. This is Science for the People, and I'm speaking with Dave Goulson, author of A Sting in the Tail, My Adventures with Bumblebees. Okay, well, I want to switch tracks just because I want to do some bumblebee myth debunking. Uh, we have all heard uh, people say, uh, potentially on the internet, that bumblebee flight violates the laws of physics. And, and as that is patently untrue, I'd like you to explain it. No one has ever tracked down the original source of, of this um legendary mythical statement um about bees everyone's heard it but everyone's heard it fifth hand and nobody can tell you who first said it it's kind of like an urban legend or something and and clearly it isn't true obviously bees managed to fly perfectly well um but as far as i know no physicist has actually sat down and tried to you know model the principles of bumblebee flight and and demonstrate that according to our current understanding of physics they shouldn't be able to fly i think it's actually the whole thing is just complete nonsense but it's one of these things that's sort of self-perpetuating and won't go away one of the things that i found so interesting about your book is that they have a a very high body temperature because of the way they fly i i remember being taught in my biology lessons when i was at school that that insects are cold-blooded you know that mammals and birds are warm-blooded which basically means that they generate heat we generate heat internally uh, muscles and metabolic action and so on and then we we regulate our body temperature so we we sweat and we shiver and we do all sorts of things to keep our body temperature more or less stable uh, whereas insects and reptiles and so on their their body temperature is largely kind of determined by by the the ambient temperature around them and and all they can do to warm themselves up is to bask in in the sun on a warm day and and in that way they can get warm enough to be active and so on and that's why insects generally tend to be active in sunny weather and so on all makes perfect sense but for some insects it just isn't true and um bumblebees are 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 one of these exceptions um so bumblebees they produce most of their their heat internally just like we do um the middle of the bee the the central section of the thorax is is full of flight muscles when they're flying they flap their wings very fast about 200 times a second um which generates lots of heat from these flight muscles and the fur on the outside of a of of the bumblebee uh, helps to keep that in um, and they regulate their temperature. They have all sorts of mechanisms. They can they can cool themselves down if they need to. And in fact, their body temperature when when a bumblebee is at, is active, she'll make, she'll regulate her body temperature at about thirty five degrees centigrade, so pretty close to to a human body temperature. And 
that gives them big advantages over other insects because it means they can fly around in, in cold weather. And, and actually, in Britain now, we have one species of bumblebee that's, that's given up hibernating and you can see them for 12 months of the year. I've, I've got them in my back garden in the last few days. Um, so they, they can keep their body temperature about 30 degrees centigrade elevated above the air temperature. And they can live high up in, in the mountains. You get them in the Rockies, uh, right up in the Alps. You get bumblebees living in the Arctic Circle. They can come out really early in the spring when most insects, it's just too cold for them to take off and so on. But there is a kind of downside to all of this, which is, which is that it's, it uses huge amounts of energy, um, all this keeping warm when you're very small and flapping their wings very fast and everything else. Um, and, an analogy that kind of quite nicely illustrates how energetically expensive it is for a bumblebee to fly is that someone once calculated that, um, that a, a a running man has to, to, to burn off the calories in a Mars bar. Do you have Mars bars over there? Do. <laughs> you do. Excellent. Um, to, so to burn off the calories in a Mars bar, you have to run for an hour, um, which is kind of pretty depressing if you're trying to lose weight by running. If you happen to be uh, a man-sized bumblebee, which would be pretty exciting, um, then it would take you just 30 seconds of flying to burn off the calories in a Mars bar. So basically, um, although it gives them, you know, it's, it's a neat trick and it means they can fly in cold weather, it does mean that they need piles of food. They need, basically need a lot of sugary nectar to keep them in the air. And if they can't find enough flowers, then they're in big trouble. So you said that, that there haven't been, well... There haven't been basically any studies on how bees fly, but there have been a tremendous number of studies on bee navigation, and some of them you've you've been involved in. Mm, yeah, so one of the I mean one of the really clever things that bees do is they uh, navigate long distances across the landscape, backwards and forwards. From you know they they leave their nest, they go out and search for patches of flowers. Um, they they can go several miles from their nest if they need to to find a good patch of flowers, and then they can find their way back again. And and obviously if they get lost, then then they're they're doomed. Basically, they've lost their home. They can't build. You know, if it's a worker, then that's she's had it basically. Um, but they very rarely do get lost. They, you know, they they could they they have all sorts of clever tricks. They can uh, they memorize landmarks and the relative position of their nest relative to say a tree or a tall building or a lamppost or whatever um, they can use the, the sun as a compass uh, they can use the earth's magnetic field as a compass so they're, they're pretty smart little things um, we, we did some work um, oh, a long time ago now on, on their ability to home so I guess most people are familiar with homing in pigeons and you know people it's a popular hobby still in, in some parts of Britain to, to keep pigeons and at weekends you, you, you drive them 100 miles away and chuck them out of your car and a couple of hours later they turn up back at home you know they're, they're really uh, impressive so we tried doing similar things with bumblebees. I, I had some bumblebee nests in my back garden, and uh, I captured workers as they were they were coming out of the nest, and I drove them around the countryside and released them out of the window of my car. And uh, I individually lay, put little numbered tags on their backs so I, I could tell which bee was which. And then I'd I'd race home and sit outside their nests waiting for them to come back and see which ones came back and how far they could get home from and and so on. And um, some of them would beat me home in my car. You know, they're, they, they're pretty quick. And there was the, the, 
I got would get stuck in traffic sometimes, and by the time I'd get back, the bees would already be there. Um, so yeah, they're, they're they're pretty smart when you consider how how tiny they are. It's it's amazing the distances that they can navigate over. They put us to shame. Well, and they seem to understand which flowers have nectar in them and which don't. Yeah, so so this was actually the very first thing I studied as it, with respect to bees. So I, at the time, I was I was I was a kind of a new university lecturer at uh, Southampton Uni uh, about twenty years ago, and uh, I wasn't quite sure what I was doing, to be honest. Um, and I didn't really have a research program going, and and uh, I was kind of a man in 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 search of a mission. And uh, anyway, so I was, I was watching watch. I found myself watching bees one day in a nature reserve. And I spotted something that I just thought was quite intriguing, which, but, and, and anyone can see this in their back garden. You have to wait till spring now, but when the bees are out and about, if you watch a bee in a patch of flowers, you'll see that, see that she often flies up to flowers, gets very, very close to them, but doesn't quite touch them. She sort of waves her antennae close to them. And then she veers away and she'll, she might approach several flowers before she finds one that she's sort of happy with and lands on and puts her tongue into the flower and drinks the nectar. Um, and I watched this and I thought, well, what are they doing? You know, what's wrong with the flowers that she's sort of rejecting at the last minute? And so I ended, I ended up spending spending five years sort of unraveling what, what was going on. I had a, a PhD student called Jane Stout and she, she did her, most of her PhD on this. Um, and the, to cut a, a very long five-year story rather short, what, what the bees turns out are doing is they are sniffing the flower for a whiff of bee Every time a bee lands on a flower, um, she leaves, just, just as when you or I hold a wine glass, we leave a little fingerprint behind, which is a fingerprint is basically a little smear of oils, hydrocarbons from our skin that we leave on the glass. And in exactly the same way, every time a bee lands on a flower, she leaves a little tiny smear of, of chemicals behind, not deliberately, but just, you know, because she's covered in them. And obviously when a bee visits a flower, she takes all the reward. So any flower that smells of a recent visit by another bee won't have anything in it. Um, and so actually the, what they're doing is they're using this cue as an indicator of which flowers are empty and which ones are likely to be full, and it just saves them by saving them having to land and put their tongue into the flower and then find there's nothing in it. It saves them maybe half a second of flower, but when a bee is visiting tens of thousands of flowers in a day, that adds up to a really big time saving and makes them much more efficient at gathering uh, nectar and making honey than, than they would otherwise be. How does one study that? <laughs> well, good question. We did lots of things. I mean, the, the very first thing we did was we, we, we thought maybe they can simply smell the nectar and they were just smelling the flowers to see whether they, the, you know, if they smelled strongly of nectar, they'd land and if, if, they, if they didn't, they'd, they'd skip on. So we, you can manipulate the amount of nectar in flowers. You can get these, they're called microcapillary tubes, which are just basically very fine glass tubes. Uh, and if you, if you insert them carefully into a flower, they'll draw up the, the nectar just like a bee's tongue does. Um, so you can artificially empty flowers. And then you can take nectar from one flower and you can artificially fill another flower. So you can manipulate whether there's nectar there or not. And we tried playing around with this, but the, uh, and it soon became clear that the bees weren't able to directly detect 
whether there was nectar there or not. So, for example, if, if, we, if we got a flower that had recently been emptied by another bee and we filled it up with nectar and offered it to a, to a new bee, she'd reject it even though it was full of nectar. So, so clearly they weren't able to directly detect how much food was in there. So it started to dawn on us that maybe it was something to do with the smell of a bee visitor. So we tried taking a recently dead bee uh, and touching her against flowers, and that seemed to induce the, this repellent kind of effect. And then we, we did chemical analyses to find out what the chemicals were that were left behind, and we, you can synthesize them or buy some of them off the shelf and we put the chemicals themselves onto flowers and we got the same effect and so on so eventually we kind of pieced it all together but it took an awful lot of work so is the idea then that the i guess the bee footprint the pheromone oils whatever it is would wear off by the time the nectar refills in a flower yeah, well, so uh, that's that's a very good point. Um, obviously, if the fl- if a flower remained repellent and smelt of bees forever, then that wouldn't be any use. Um, it needs to be a cue that that wears off, uh, or that where a bee can detect how old the the cue is. So, if, for example, they're visiting a flower species that that refills within about half an hour of being emptied, then they need to be able to to detect whether this that that previous bee visitor was more or less than half an hour ago, and they seem to be able to do that. Um, and so our interpretation initially was that the scent mark is kind of evaporating, the smell of bee is wearing off, and that they can judge an appropriate kind of strength to decide when to revisit flowers. In actual fact, that turned out to be completely wrong. There's some more, more recent work by, by some other uh, researchers in Germany that showed that actually the scent marks don't wear off. They're still there. If you take the flower and stick it into a, uh, a, an analytical machine, these chemicals, they don't evaporate quickly at all. They're very kind of heavy oils, um, which, which leaves, leaves a, a slight puzzle as to how the bees can possibly age the mark. Um, and our best guess at this point, and it is just a guess, is that actually the oils aren't evaporating, but they're sinking in to the waxy surface of the petals, so they're becoming less easily detected by a bee visitor even though the chemicals are actually still there but that's kind of speculation and we don't really know for sure okay now you spoke about uh, just a ton of uh, of different studies in this book which was fantastic but i i just have to mention could you explain to people how one measures a bee tongue yeah, it's 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 fairly straightforward. I mean, you, it, it's much easier on a dead bee than a live bee. I have to say, they don't like it if you try and do it to a live bee. So, different species of bee have very different length tongues, which is why it's important because it it determines what flowers they visit. Some have really long tongues, almost as long as their whole body, that they use to drink from from really deep flowers. Um, and so, if you if you have a, a dead bee, you can simply unfold the tongue and measure from from where it attaches to the base of the head to the tip of the tongue. Um, just with with little calipers, or even just a ruler, is actually is, is reasonably accurate. Um, you can see it's, it's it's next time you are in a in a in a garden in the in the spring, and there are flowers and bees around. If you watch when you, you see a bee comes in to land on a flower, she flicks out this tongue, and in some species, it's really quite quite short and pathetic um but other species have these really rather magnificent long tongues that they wave in front of them as they as they come into land you're listening to science for the people and my guest is dave goulson author of a sting in the tail my adventures with bumblebees stay tuned for more after these messages science for the people is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective 
To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I am happy to have Professor Dave Goulson with us today. Dave is the prolific author of various bee-related writings, and we've been talking about A Sting in the Tail, My Adventures with Bumblebees. Okay, now all the conversation has been happy so far, so of course I'm going to ruin that and ask you about uh, our declining bee populations. Sadly, bees have been in decline for, for quite a few decades now um some species have, have actually gone extinct um in fact the most recent global extinction uh of a bumblebee was uh, of a species that used to live in uh, california and oregon franklin's bumblebee which is now almost certainly gone forever um in britain we've had three species go extinct and, and several others um have declined enormously um and are sort of teetering on the edge of going extinct so so i i our bees are in trouble and we should be really worried about that because uh, we depend on bees to pollinate uh, our crops. So three quarters of all the, the species of crop, the types of crop that, that man grows around the world require pollination by some kind of insect and usually it's bees. Um, and so we're, we're, we're enormously dependent on these little things and we need to look after them and if they're disappearing then that's a major problem. The reasons why they're disappearing are, are kind of complicated. There's, there's one big one that everyone agrees on, um, which is that essentially there used to be way more flowers than there are now. Just to give you an example, um, 100 years ago uh, in, the, in the UK, we had 7 million hectares of, of what was it's what's called flower-rich grassland, so sort of flowery hay meadows, um, the sort of sort of meadow that you might skip through with a butterfly net chasing after butterflies and bees or whatever, and, and the sort of place that bees love to live because they're chock full of flowers. Um, so that was 100 years ago, 7 million hectares. Today, we have about 2% of that left. Most of it was ploughed up and turned into farmland, uh, so uh, cereal fields or silage fields. And if you're a bee, then that's pretty disastrous because basically most of the flowers that we used to have in the countryside, we don't have anymore. So that's a, that's a big gradual change that's affected uh, all of developed countries and, and to a large extent developing countries in the world um, and made life pretty tough for bees. But then there are other issues more um, which are kind of exacerbating the problem. Um, one is to do with parasites and, uh, and, and diseases. Uh, now bees naturally have loads of parasites and diseases. Um, and, you know, they've evolved to deal with that. Naturally, they, they cope. Um, but we've rather stupidly redistributed bee parasites around the world. Um, probably the best known one of those is the, is the varroa mite, which is a pest of honeybees rather than bumblebees but it's 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 originally from asia didn't naturally occur um in europe or north america um and european honeybees which are the ones kept in the americas as well um have have really no resistance to this 
it's a, it's a it's a mite, a blood sucking mite, and it, it spreads viruses from bee to bee, and it's a, generally a complete pain if you're a beekeeper. But so by accidentally spreading this mite around the world, we've created huge problems for honeybees. So that's a really well known example. What's less well known is that we've also redistributed a whole bunch of other bee diseases, many of which affect wild pollinators like bumblebees. And probably the most dramatic example right now is a really depressing story from South America, where very foolishly, in my opinion. The, the Chilean government in the late 90s decided to introduce European bumblebees um, for crop pollination. Why they needed European bumblebees is anyone's guess, because there are native bumblebees in South America uh, that would have done the job perfectly well, but they decided to import some, some European bumblebees and they released them and they've established in the wild and they're rapidly spreading over the bottom half of South America which might not have been so bad, but they didn't think to check the bees to make sure they hadn't got any European diseases. And, and of course, they did have. And so we've accidentally introduced at least two new diseases to South America, which, which the South American bumblebees have no resistance to at all. And they're basically just being wiped out. And, I mean, this is, you could make a parallel with what happened 500 years ago when the first European people visited the Americas and, and accidentally took with them European diseases that the native um, populations of, of people living in the Americas had uh, no resistance to. Exactly the same thing is now happening with bees. So it, it, that has really not not helped. And there are other examples in North America and, and in Britain and so on as well. Um, so a bit about uh, colony collapse disorder? Because we do read about it often in the news. Yeah, well, so honeybees suffer from many of the same problems that bumblebees suffer from um, and there's, there's been an awful honeybees tend to get all the attention because beekeepers keep them and they notice if something goes wrong with their their honeybees if they die then they're not happy um, so when, when if, a, if a wild bumblebee nest were to die chances are no one would ever notice but but when honeybees die the beekeepers are upset understandably and quite rightly and so there's been a lot of attention drawn to the fact that in recent years there have been a number of incidents of unusually high rates of colony loss in honeybees. Now, this, this is sometimes called CCD, colony collapse disorder, which is actually slightly confusing because, because this term, colony collapse disorder, was first used to describe a particular type of honeybee colony death where the bees disappear, the adult bees kind of abscond. There's not a pile of dead bodies. Um, they just abandon their brood and fly away and presumably die somewhere. Who knows? And so so actually there was another name coined long, which didn't, fell out of favour called Marie Celeste syndrome for exactly the same thing. Unfortunately, a lot of people, when they have sort of synonymized bee colonies dying with CCD, but actually colony death can take many different forms. Sometimes the bees die in the hive, there's a pile of dead bodies outside the hive, um, and so on. So it's all, it's a bit confusing. Um, uh, but strictly speaking, CCD is a particular type of honeybee colony death, um, as opposed to just any old honeybee colony dying. Either way, um, the causes of it still remain um, the subject of, of a lot of debate. My take on this is, is that the basic drivers of, of honeybee ill health are the same as the drivers of, of bumblebee problems. You've got not many flowers, and, and often uh, relating to that, 
no great diversity of flowers. So, so you know, bees living in intensively farmed areas, um, they don't have much choice. In the, their diet is is restricted to whatever crop happens to be flowering because there aren't many wildflowers. So, if, you know, to take a sort of slightly silly example, you know, imagine you were forced to eat sardines for a month and then chocolate for the next month and then turnips for the month after that. You probably wouldn't be very healthy and you wouldn't be certainly wouldn't be very happy. Um, but Poor honeybees, what happens particularly in North America is they're, they're moved around from crop to crop. So, uh, in, in early spring, all they get to eat is almonds. They'll all be in Northern California to pollinate the almonds and there's virtually no other flowers. So for a month, they'll just get almond blossom and then they'll be shipped to, to Maine for the, uh, for the blueberry flowering. Uh, and at some point they'll be in Florida for the citrus and so on. So, so they get this really weird and unnatural diet. So that's, that's no doubt one of the problems that then there's, there's all these parasite problems, which, uh, I've mentioned mentioned varroa already but there are um basically these these diseases and parasites that we've accidentally brought in which harm both honeybees and bumblebees and then there are there are pesticides um which is a much more controversial issue um as to just how important pesticides are in harming um both wild bees or honeybees i'm personally pretty convinced that, that, that they are contributing to the problem. I'm not saying they're the, the biggest problem, but they certainly don't help. Um, we use a lot of pesticides in modern agriculture, a lot of insecticides in particular. Um, and if you're a bee living in, in modern farmland, you basically you, you don't have much to eat. You, you have a very monotonous diet. You're probably infected with some nasty disease from Asia um, and you're being slightly poisoned all at the same time and given that combination then it's probably not surprising that both our honeybees and our bumblebees are sometimes looking more than a little peaky um, or even dying um, so so I think that the range of problems that, that, that both wild bees and managed bees suffer from are, are, are pretty much the same but people argue over exactly what's caused the you know, honeybee colonies to die this year or last year or in Ontario versus Great Britain or whatever and probably the precise combination is different from time to time and place to place so there isn't there certainly isn't a single cause of honeybee colony deaths it's a combination of things that we we, we throw all these stresses at, at, at our poor bees and then we wonder when they die this is science for the people and I'm here with Dave Goulson author of a sting in the tail my adventures with bumblebees Okay, so we're, we're talking about all the, the dangers of importing bees. Um, is there any way to, to sort of mitigate some of those potential problems? Because from what I understand, we're running out of bees. <laughs> and so it's important for, for various reasons, some commercial reasons. Absolutely. There, there are basically three things that we can do. And, and the, one of the nice things about bees is that, is that we can all help. You know, when you hear about, I don't know, polar bears, Big trouble. The ice cap's melting. They've got nowhere to live. Very hard for any of us individually to do much to help polar bears, or for that matter, tigers or pandas or great northern rhino or whatever. But for bees, you can. Everyone can help. In short, there are three things. Firstly, give them flowers. Secondly, we should avoid getting any more pests and diseases spread around the world. And thirdly, we should try and reduce how many pesticides they're exposed to. So that's it quickly and numbers one and three of those are things that we we can all influence so 
don't use pesticides in your back garden. Um, there's not really any need. Farmers might need them, but you don't need them in a garden. Plant some nice flowers for bees. If you've any kind of space, even a window box or a rooftop terrace, if you plant bee-friendly flowers, um, I guarantee that as soon as they flower, bees will find them, whether you're in the middle of a city or wherever you might be. And you're helping to give them some you know, some extra food, some extra nutrition, a bit of variety. Um, every every plant you can plant for them is is good. Um, and there are there are plenty of lists available, really easy to find on the internet for uh, the recommended flowers that are good for bees. Uh, my own website has has uh, the University of Sussex has some, but you'll you'll find ones that are perhaps more relevant to North America easily enough. So it's that's a really easy thing that everyone can do. It's a little bit harder to tackle getting flowers back into farmland, but that can be done and there are some farmers that are, that are doing exactly that um, right now. There's some really nice initiatives in, in Northern California where they're, they're planting hedges of flowering shrubs uh, along the edges of fields. In Britain here we have schemes where um, farmers get subsidies for putting in flower strips along their field margins, up the, you know, little narrow strips couple of meters six meters wide um, of wildflowers or clover or whatever along the along the edge of a uh, an arable field um, and all of these things work you know every patch of flowers we can put back into the landscape it just gives bees a better chance you know they can cope with some of the other stresses we throw at them if they've got enough to eat so you know we 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 can all help and the, for the species that have gone extinct it's too late to do anything but for the ones that haven't um, we can save them and we need to get on and do it Okay, so while while most people in your position would just lament the state of the bee world, uh, you you started a charity instead. Yeah, absolutely. So so I got a bit fed up of um, you know it's all science is very kind of insular, and and you you do your research for a few years, and you you write a paper, and it, it gets published in some crusty scientific journal that's only read by about five other people that work on bumblebees, and it doesn't actually change anything, um, and so. I thought we needed to actually do something, you know, to actually change change the world for the better if we could. And so, yeah, I, uh, back in, in 2006 now, I, I, uh, I started a, a charity, the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, which isn't the most imaginative title I could have come up with. But anyway, and, and it's a, so it's a membership-based organisation d- devoted to trying to, you know, solve these problems for bees. And, and its biggest activities relate to trying to create more flowery habitat for bees and encourage people to garden in a bee-friendly way and so on. And it's, it's got 13,000 members now, which I'm very proud of. It's, got, it's gone great. And I, I kind of wonder whether, the, you know, possibly there might be scope for something similar in other countries. Um, in North America, you have the Xerxes Society, who do a, a, a kind of cover all insects, but do a really good job. Um, so, so maybe you don't need a bead specialist charity over there. But uh, it's worked really well in Britain. And, you know, it's nice to be able to, you can now visit places where, where, where the work of the Trust has created, you know, whole flowery meadows that you can walk through and you can see thousands of happy bees feeding on the flowers and it's really nice to know that you know that 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 wouldn't have been there if we hadn't kicked this all off um eight years ago so it it it, it really is possible to make a difference and and help our bees okay i want to clarify i'm going to do one more bit of debunking but i think it's a good one uh there's a quote that is often attributed to einstein (laughs) although that's debatable itself so regardless someone said if the bee disappeared off the face of the earth, man would only have four years left to live. Now, that's not exactly true, correct? 
No. Well, so firstly, it is often attributed to Einstein, but I don't think really there's any chance that he actually said that. As far as I know, he wasn't prone to making kind of wild pronouncements on on topics that he knew nothing about. But who knows? Whoever said it, um, it's not true. Well, there's, there's two things. Firstly, bees aren't going to go extinct. Some individual species will, there are 22,000, and uh, it, if we reach a point where all of the bees on the planet are extinct, then I think we will be gone, but we, only because we will have had to have basically destroyed the entire planet to do so. But just supposing that one could somehow magically get rid of all the bees in, in the world overnight, life would be miserable for us. We wouldn't go extinct, but quite a lot of us would starve. I said earlier that three quarters of the, of the plants that we grow for crops are pollinated by insects but actually don't they, they that 75 percent only accounts for about a third of the bulk of the of the food that we eat by weight because most of what we eat is is wind pollinated think grasses basically the seeds of grasses so we eat tons of wheat and barley and corn and rice uh, none of which depend on on uh, on bees at all so so without bees basically many of us would survive but our diet would be basically bread and rice and porridge so it'd be pretty damn boring um so so we do need the bees but uh, probably humans could could linger on without them i guess save the bees so we all don't have to live on porridge that's a wonderful <laughs> message sir. dave it was lovely to have you here thanks very much my pleasure We've linked to Dave Golson and A Sting in the Tail on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. In just a minute, we'll be back to talk about urban beekeeping and local government activism with Jocelyn Crocker, founding member of YEG Bees. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. I'm joined now by Jocelyn Crocker, an instructor with the Department of Biological Sciences Technology at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. She's one of the founding members of YEGBs, a group that promotes urban beekeeping in Edmonton. Before taking a beekeeping certification course in January 2014, Jocelyn knew almost nothing about bees except for the fact that she liked to eat their tasty products on toast for breakfast. Good to have you here, Jocelyn. Hi, I'm glad to be here too. So tell me a bit about YEGBs. Last January, so that would be January 2014, I took a beekeeping course. It was a two-day weekend event that completely changed the course of my life, actually. And over the course of that weekend, we learned about how to do urban beekeeping. And in the city that we're in, it's not actually legal. And so some of the people who are in the course with me, we started this conversation and we asked ourselves, maybe we could pressure our city council to consider legalizing it. And so we formed YEGBs, Y-E-G-Bs, as a group of interested community members who wanted to pressure our city to do a bee pilot. Okay, well, we'll get back to regulations in a second, but maybe walk me through this. Why might one want to keep a beehive in their backyard? 
Oh, there are so many reasons. The first reason, of course, is the honey. But actually, that, in my case anyway, is the most a, a happy afterthought. Um, one, people get into beekeeping because they're really interested in bees. Bees as organisms are really fascinating creatures. I could probably talk for a very long time about all the interesting things that they do and um, how they're connected with their ecosystems. But um, another reason why people would want to do beekeeping, and that's one of the reasons why I took the course, was to increase local food production. So my husband and I, we got into beekeeping through permaculture. We had taken up our front lawn and removed the the grass and planted a food forest and we asked ourselves the question how can we maximize our food production and so initially we thought we would just try and attract pollinators to our yard by planting bee friendly plants but then we thought no we want more bees and so we got them There's a couple things you need to do. One is I would absolutely suggest you take a two-day bee course. Um, there is so much to know about husbandry with the hives, and especially because bees right now are affected by some infestations of mites and other types of uh, bee diseases that you need to know how to manage if you're going to have hives successfully. Um, in an urban environment, you also need to know how to manage your hive to prevent swarming, which isn't dangerous but can be scary for people to see if they don't know about bees. Another thing you need to do is find a mentor, someone who is an experienced beekeeper. We've been really lucky with our bee mentors. We've ha we have a couple of uh, of them that are helping us out, and it's really great because while you can learn a lot in the bee course, there's a lot of gray areas for bees about decisions you can make about how to how to deal with you know you see something and you feel like you need to deal with it, and so there's lots of different routes you can take, and having a bee mentor can help you make the an informed decision. Another thing you need to do is learn the rules for your municipality regarding bees if you're going to do urban beekeeping. So there are some places where it is legal. There are other places like Calgary where it's not legal, but it's not illegal. So it's a, a gray area that the city has chosen to, to keep beekeeping in. Um, and then there's other places like Edmonton currently where it is illegal. So we have a bylaw that says you cannot keep bees. Um, and then the last thing you need to do is buy new equipment. You can find beekeeping equipment on Kijiji, but the problem with the bee diseases is it really is um, a good idea to, to buy all your bee boxes and all your frames new if possible. And where do you get the bees? Well, there's a couple different ways you can get them. Um, one is you can, there's kind of three, three sources of bees. One is called a nuke or a nucleus colony. And so that you would buy from a local beekeeper or, um, Calgary has a, a community hive purchase that happens every February where, um, they collaborate with, um, Sweet Acre Apiaries in Salmon Arm, BC, and then they bring in hives from BC to Alberta. And then a second way you can get bees is through bee co-ops or PB Marts, uh, and you order what's called a package. So what comes in the mail is essentially a cardboard tube filled with bees. Oh, the postal <laughs> department loves you. Yeah. And so usually the, they get shipped to the, the bee co-ops, and then you go and pick them up. And then the third way you can get bees, which involves you need to have your equipment in advance, but you can catch a swarm. 
in the spring and fall, if you come across a swarm or you hear about a swarm, the, the rule of beekeeping is if your bees swarm, they're no longer your bees. And so whoever catches the swarm, it's, it's fair game for them to keep them. So is it actually possibly a better idea to go after a swarm? Because I understand that there are concerns about what kinds of bees you, you import for a backyard hive. Like you have to be careful that they're not going to interfere with current bee populations? Or Well, you know, honeybees are not actually native to North America. They're brought in with the European settlers. So in that way, any honeybee you bring in is not a native pollinator. Um, but one of the, the concerns with um, bringing bees into a northern place like Edmonton is overwintering them. And so um, catching a swarm or buying bees from local beekeepers or like through that community hive purchase, it's a good idea because there, uh, there will be stocks of bees that have overwintered successfully. When you buy a bee ca- package, they often come from places like New Zealand that have much milder winters. So what about maintaining the hive? What's that like on a day-to-day basis? Well, in terms of the time commitment, it changes over the course of the year. So, of course, in the winter, all I get to do is stare out through my window at my bees and kind of wave hello to them. So there's not much to do in the winter. Um, Come spring, you need to be checking them once the temperatures are above 10 Celsius. And the time commitment for that is about an hour a week per hive. So you do a weekly hive inspection. And in that hive inspection, ideally, you look at every single frame in every single box in the hive, and you're checking for evidence of disease and also looking for the health of the hive and evidence that the queen is laying and that the the hive is happy and healthy. Now, you mentioned the the weather, and in Edmonton, we have approximately 10 months of winter. So how what do they do during the winter? They don't go into hibernation per se, but insects, as the temperatures get lower, their metabolism slow down, so they certainly aren't as active as they are when it's in the winter. But what they form around the queen is a bee ball. And so there's this dense cluster of ball uh, of bees, kind of like, you know, the penguins, how they, they form this right. <laughs> mass. And then the inside of the mass is warmer than the outside. And so there's slow migration from the outside to the inside with the queen being in the middle. And they vibrate their thoracic muscles to generate heat. So the inside of that bee ball, no matter how cold it is outside, is about 34 Celsius. So let's let's go back to the regulations around this. So, of course, my first question is, why is there a bylaw against beekeeping? Well, actually, in our municipality, uh, beekeeping, we've actually had a long history of it. So there were hundreds of hives in Edmonton in the 1950s, for instance. But in the early 1980s, they banned it because of safety concerns. And there are people who have a real allergy to bee stings. The bee venom, everyone reacts to it. So everyone gets swelling, everyone gets redness. And some people, if you get stung, your limb can swell. And that doesn't necessarily indicate a real allergy. The true allergies are actually quite rare. So it's 1% of 1% of people. And the reason why I don't want to say it's a non-issue, because for those people, a bee sting can be fatal. My understanding of it is that's kind of why they they banned it. But because it is fairly rare, and because for urban beekeeping, the people who are most at risk at being stung are the ones whose hands are in the hive. 
it's not so much of a danger for people who live in the community that have stings. And just to put it into perspective, we had our hives in our backyard and we had our children playing in the swimming pool and we had our children helping us with hive inspections. And I had my hands in a hive the entire summer and I was only stung twice. And my children were never stung. And none of the people who ever came to visit our yard for a barbecue or um, just spending time outside, there is never, never any concern that they would be stung. So we do have uh, apparently radical beekeepers in Edmonton, which warms my heart in a very odd way. So has there been any repercussions <laughs> for this at all? Has anybody been arrested for backyard beekeeping? No, you don't get arrested, but if you get caught with a hive, you get a letter from bylaws saying, move your hive in seven days or it will be a $500 a day fine. Our hives are actually part of the City of Edmonton's Urban Beekeeping Pilot Project. And so this summer, we got involved with the City Council, and on July 7th, they had a meeting with the Community Standards Committee, and they decided to do a bee pilot. And so uh, it took them a little while to get organized and what the parameters would be, but um, they have about 10 hives in the city that are city-sanctioned and that have been inspected by bylaw officers, and it's part of the city's process towards legalization. The last communication that I had with the bylaw um, group is that they're going to be presenting to city council in March with the idea of um, giving them a report about how the bylaw or how the pilot project went and how they think the bylaw should be changed. So my understanding is it's not an if, it's a how they're going to do it. Great. So YEGBs is actually sort of a de facto lobbyist group as well. Yeah, that's kind of why we started, because we wanted to do beekeeping, but we didn't want to do it illegally. Our biggest concern with underground beekeeping is that the community is quite closed, and there's not an open way to ask questions or to share experiences or information. So we were part of these secret Facebook groups, but if, if you can't actually openly ask for help or to bring people to your house, you know, to inspect your hive with you, it's just not the best way to proceed in our mind, especially with bee diseases. So for instance, there's some bee diseases that if you find them in your hive, you have to kill your hive, you have to burn all your equipment because the it's this one spore forming bacteria called American fowl root. And so if you find it it's devastating. You have to kill you have to kill everything to burn everything. And in an underground situation, if you have inexperienced beekeepers who think they might have American fowl root, there isn't a way to ask for help and to, to get people in to see because your bees are there illegally. And so if it is legal or at least sanctioned by the city, then you can have open communication, you can have open supports. And in fact, that's kind of what's grown from this pilot is a lot more openness about urban beekeeping and, and more of a community and more support and more sharing of information. So what other kind of challenges do you see? Uh, you have regulation, you have stings, you have uh, parasites and diseases. What other challenges might you see from uh, keeping bees in your backyard? Well, certainly there is a public relations piece with your neighbors. For the most part, our neighbors have been fabulously supportive and most of them have been over for a hive inspection and we've shared some of our honey with them. Um, we did have one neighbor who was really not impressed about the bees and she had a lot of fear about them and unbeknownst to us, she actually had a fountain that was tucked behind a hedge and her garage that we couldn't see and the bees were visiting her fountain for water. 
And so because she wasn't thrilled with it, um, the bees going to her fountain were really upsetting for her. And so um, we had to kind of find ways to get the bees to come to our fountain instead of their fountain and to educate her a little bit about them because she was afraid of stings. But unless you're inspecting the hive with your hands in the hive, you're very unlikely to be stung by a honeybee. Now, if you live in Edmonton, you can always contact YEG Bees for more information about how to go about setting up a hive. Uh, but most of our listeners are elsewhere. So where would you direct them? Well, certainly many communities have um, bee co-ops or bee groups. And so I would suggest that they search either on Google or on Facebook or on Twitter to find their local bee group. The bee groups often are formed from the commercial folk, so the, the apiaries that are in the area, but there's often urban beekeeping groups or um, such as the case of Edmonton, kind of a combination where it's both commercial and hobbyists who attend meetings. And that's a really good way to get connected to the the local people and the local knowledge that is in the area and anything else you'd like to you'd like people to know about backyard beekeeping one of the questions that you had emailed me that i thought was a really important one was um, if you're in a place where bees are not legal how do you work with your municipality to try and get them approved Uh, i'll tell you the process we did one was we contacted all of our city council members individually saying that we were interested in a bee pilot and would they consider talking with us and did they want to come and see our hives and how you know all of those things and we actually found funny enough that contacting our city councillors through twitter uh, was easier to get an immediate response than through email. So I would certainly say try through social media as well as through the regular avenues. And we actually had uh, one counselor who came forward and was our champion. So he really helped push things through and helped um, connect us with the, the city council and, and helped open that communication. And another thing is looking at the infrastructure that's already there. So um, we worked with the Edmonton and District Beekeeping Association and got a little bit of support through them. And we also worked with um, the Fresh Council, which has a mandate for improving urban agriculture. So groups that push for urban agriculture are a very natural pairing for people who are wanting to push for bees because the two are very much intertwined with one another. You'll find a link to YEGBs on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, visit the links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, and to iTunes, where you can subscribe to the weekly podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Mm-hmm.